Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. up in the the 1990s which some of you doesn't seem like that long ago it doesn't seem like that long ago to me until I do some math and I'm like wow 30 years I still think 30 years ago was the 70s and I wasn't born yet but that's that's where we're at you know so uh, anyway I I grew up in in the 90s and uh, as an adult who grew up in the 90s I have thought on more than one occasion about filing some kind of lawsuit against Hollywood for emotional trauma. Because it was in these formative years of my fragile psyche that they decided to uh, release like a whole slew of disaster movies. Do you, do you remember these? This, like every couple of months it seemed like there was a new movie about the end of the world. Some big name actor would come out with a movie that detailed the possible and probable destruction of the earth. You know, my favorite one of these films, I actually don't even like this movie, but I think it's my favorite because it's the only one that like comes to mind when I think of this, is a, a movie called Armageddon. You guys remember this movie? It had Ben Affleck in it and Bruce Willis. They were oil riggers who somehow became space cowboys in an attempt to like blow up a giant asteroid that was hurtling towards the earth, right? Uh, I, I think that I was in like eighth grade or something when this movie came out. And uh, so probably one of my, my favorite things about it or the reason that it's so memorable to me is that I went to see it in the movie theater with my eighth grade girlfriend. So it was probably like my first date. Uh, I'm not really 100% sure on that fact. But either, either way, that, that's why this movie is like so deeply ingrained uh, in my psyche. Uh, you know, it was, it was a movie that had lots of action. It was a movie that had a stunning love story that embroiled Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis's very beautiful daughter. And while I was fascinated by this movie, I was also fascinated by all the other movies that came out around that time that told stories about the near destruction of the world. I don't know why particularly, other than maybe I'm just weird, but Armageddon was particularly interesting to me because it took a name that was so closely associated with a word that was found at the end of my Bible, which I was at the time exploring and reading as a young, budding youth group child in uh, the church. And so I knew the terminology that was regularly used at the end of my Bible to describe what was supposed to happen at the end of all things. And so words like Armageddon, words like the apocalypse, 
words like revelation, were all concepts that were strangely prevalent in my middle school thinking, which is pretty ironic considering that this was like really the same time in American history where we were really uh, heavily shunning uh, like metal music and video games because of what it was doing to the brains of young impressionable children. Nobody wanted to talk about what this thing was doing, right? <laughs> but regardless of that, the point is that this era of Hollywood's obsession with the end of the world is really finds its home. It's rooted in a long-standing tradition within the broader Judeo understanding of where the world is headed. See, doomsday, Armageddon, the, the apocalypse are all words that we use to talk about the end of life as we know it. And the, the sensationalization of these ideas within our current culture has certainly taken on new forms as humans have further understood our universe and our, our place within it. Hence the plot line behind movies like Armageddon, and there's another one called Deep Impact with Morgan Freeman in it, where uh, rogue flying space rocks threaten to collide with the flying space rock that we call home and end life as we know it. But we also live in an age where we acknowledge the fact that the human striving has actually created a means for us to end this thing all on our own, an inside job, if you will, right? We live in the nuclear age. We've lived through the Cold War and the, the resulting world in which we are always just a few button presses away from total nuclear destruction. It's, it's a harsh reality that we have to live with, and it, it gets ever more harsh as we look at Eastern Europe just in these past few months and realize what could happen if a certain man decided to really exert his power. But all of that aside, it has always been the hope of Jews and Christians alike that the world would end as we know it. <laughs> And yes, I say hope because unlike the general cultural obsession with the end of the world and avoiding it, the biblical depiction of the end is actually something that we want to happen. It's a vision not of destruction, but of restoration. It's a vision of hope, a much greater hope than we could ever think of on our own without the few final chapters of our Bibles. And so about eight weeks ago, we started this sermon series called One Story. And so congratulations to all of you for continuing to come to church throughout this past two months. But where we began was we, we saw how God's creative efforts created a world that was a place that promoted and sustained life. We saw how humans messed that up, and instead of continuing to build a, a world that promoted and sustained life, what we did instead was we built and instituted power structures, governments, and nations that do just the opposite. And the Bible uses a term called Babylon in order to describe this kingdom of darkness that 
humanity is continually adept at creating, despite our best laid plans and intentions. And so God's plan was to pull one family out of this very real land of Babylon in order to establish his kingdom. That kingdom was made up of people who came to be known as Israel. But Israel failed and ended up becoming just like Babylon. And so God, from the midst of this darkness that the world was in, sent a savior. Out of the best of the worst displays of human striving, empire building, and oppression, the Roman Empire, came the man Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to call people out of the kingdoms of darkness that humanity had created in order to establish a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God was and continues to be only partially realized. It exists in, in pockets of people scattered throughout the known world, people called the church. People who exist in the midst of this messy and dark world as, as little glimpses into who God is and who God is calling humans to be. And that's our present reality as the church. Our job is to be a place of hope that it exhibits, that invites, and that embraces people on their journey to experience the, the life-promoting and life-sustaining love of God in this world. And we've been doing this thing called church now for 2,000 years or so. And I don't know about you, but it seems like it, it, it's just getting harder and harder as we go. The world seems like a place that is less hospitable and more corrupt than it's ever been. So I often think to myself, this can't be all that there is, right? This can't be, this can't be it. There's got to be far more. And the reality is, that's correct thinking. There is far more, much more than we experience now. And it's a reality, it's a truth, it's a hope that is taught to us through the last book of our Bibles. You know, the, the most improperly taught, most misunderstood, most confusing book in your entire Bible, a book called the Revelation. So when we turn to the last book of our Bible, the, the Revelation, which in Greek is a word called uh, apocalypsis, apocalypse, that's where the word comes from. I just like to say it. Uh, but when you turn to the apocalypse, <laughs> the revelation, you're immediately greeted with just this hot mess of images and scenes that make very little sense to us today. And so it, it's really easy to get lost in the weeds. People have spent their entire lives trying to figure out what this book is actually saying. And, and I can't possibly explain it all to you in one 20 to 25-minute sermon. Uh, that's like some really pretty heavy Bible study stuff. But what we need to do is focus on what the book is seeking to accomplish. 
And so one of my, my favorite scholars is, is a man named Dr. Tim Mackey. And this is what uh, he says about the book of Revelation. He says, Revelation serves as a symbolic vision for every age of the church that reveals the historical pattern that all human kingdoms become Babylon and must be resisted. And God's promise that Jesus will return to remove evil from his world. And what this means is that, that the primary thrust of the book of Revelation is focused on God's goal and the human task. It's not some secret code that we should be spending our time trying to decipher in order to figure out when Jesus is coming back or if he's coming back at all. But this also means that our primary hope, the, the primary hope of the Bible, the primary hope of we God's people, it all comes from the end of the book of Revelation. And, and so the, the 21st chapter of Revelation is, is something that I, I've read to you throughout uh, some of the other sermons in this series, but I want to read it to you again and just focus on the, on the message and the vision of what God's hope for us is. It says, Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, and the idolaters, and all the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so what this passage is, is really focusing in on and, and really striking at is, is the second of those two core ideas that Dr. Mackey says that the book of Revelation is really all about. It, it, it's about Jesus's return and removal of, of evil. It says Jesus will return and Jesus will remove evil and remove it eternally. And along with evil, the effects of evil will cease to exist. Death, mourning, crying, pain will be no more. See, if you remember that God created the world to be a life-promoting and life-sustaining place, if you remember that, then you remember that, that evil was introduced, and so, along with it, was death. So when evil is removed from this world, the place that, that this world is becomes one that, that truly promotes 
and sustains life eternally without the threat of death ever looming in the shadows again. But this passage also illuminates for us an even deeper truth that we that is going to require us to rearrange our own understanding of heaven and of earth. You see, the real hope for humans, according to the Bible, is not that solely we would die and go to the good place. <laughs> Certainly, our, our modern conception of heaven is not entirely wrong not entirely incorrect. We will certainly experience paradise when we die in Christ. But what we need to do is not put all of our stock into a future of floating around as disembodied spirits playing harps. If your aspirations are to become an angel when you die, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. That's just not what the Bible says. <laughs> what you will become when you die is still human. And sorry if that's what you're hoping for, but, but it's just not all in your Bible. The Bible really tells us this about heaven, that, that heaven is a place where God's throne exists, that it is full of the glorious presence of God and all of the heavenly hosts singing uh, singing angelic songs to God, and that we will experience rest in God's presence while we wait for a new future reality, which is way more absurd and weird than anything that we have in our minds about heaven. That future reality is what Revelation is pointing us to. It's the joining, actually the, the rejoining of heaven and earth. And, and with that rejoining... The souls of all those who have passed in Christ will be reunited with resurrected and glorified human bodies, just like Jesus had when he came out of the grave. We will live on this earth together in peace and in harmony with one another and fully available in the presence of God. It sounds crazy, right? But this is, this is what we believe as Christians. Every time as Christians that we say the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And we're not talking about Jesus's. We're talking about ours. Ours, those who came before us, and those who will come after. We're talking about an eternal physical life here in a real and tangible world that is free from the influence of evil, where God's presence is fully available to us and where Jesus reigns as king with righteousness and justice. A place where creation is truly, finally, and forever a place that promotes and sustains life. So if you think I'm crazy, I don't blame you, but this was the original intention of creation. In the very beginning, God created a place that was the marriage of heaven and earth, the Garden of Eden, where he walked with humans day in and day out. And humans had access to this wonderful tree called the Tree of Life. Death didn't exist. And I believe that the Bible was intentionally created to, to communicate this perfect 
message to us. And, and one of the ways that I know that it is masterfully crafted by the God of the universe it is by some of these parallel verses that I want to read to you. So if we, if we look at, at Genesis chapter 2, what I, I kind of like to call page 2 of the Bible, you have this scene. It says, A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion, and it is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And if that's on page two of your Bible, page second to last of your Bible, says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So in, in both of these passages, in the very beginning, in the very end, we have this river flowing from the presence of God to, to water and bring life to the world around it. If that doesn't convince you, here's, here's one more. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for, fee, for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge and of good and evil was there as well. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. See, both of these scenes, the place where heaven and earth are married together, are places where God's life-giving and life-promoting water and fruit and leaves presence is upon humanity. The purpose of all this is to, to heal the world, to renew and, and restore it. It's where God's work finds its fulfillment in this world that is recreated when Jesus comes back and brings all believers, past, present, and future, to be and dwell with him. So you might be thinking, well, that's fine. That's like the last two chapters of a really weird book. But what about the first 20? part that I can't understand. <laughs> but that whole mess is part of God's reminder to us that human history is riddled with kingdoms that perpetually become Babylon, kingdoms of darkness. And our only defense against becoming a part of this mess is to actively resist it. And the only way to resist becoming or being tricked into declaring our allegiance to these kingdoms of darkness is to keep our hope in God's future kingdom in the front of our minds. 
Because the power of darkness is cunning and insidious. It, it veils itself as good. It seduces us and tempts us with offers of power. And sometimes it even comes to us looking like and claiming to be of God. And so it's on us as individuals to enter into discernment about who and what we align ourselves with. First, we must discern for ourselves, like, is this a, a person, an organization, a political entity, or even a church that is seeking to create a world that promotes and sustains life? And then we have to discern on a daily basis if our ultimate hope is actually being placed in that entity or if it remains in the hope of God's restored world. You see, typically our biggest mistake comes here. We, we buy into the promises that people make to us that they're going to fix this broken mess of a world, right? We follow politicians, we follow philanthropists, we follow scientists, we follow celebrities, we follow pastors. And we follow them more closely than we follow Jesus. And in the end, when they fail, we are left empty. See, these are, are the ways that we are distracted from the, the primary purposes of God in this world and our place in it. We, we get lost in the mess, and what happens is division and disillusionment. The hope of God's new world gets tossed in the backseat, and we start driving down all the wrong roads. We forget to live into our purpose, to, to love God with all of our hearts. We forget to love our neighbors as ourselves. We forget, well, we forget the one story. We forget that as much as it's one story about Jesus, that it's also a story about us. It's a story that we are called to inhabit, a story that we are called to live. It's a story that is meant to command our allegiance because it's a story about our true home and the one who welcomes us into it. And so it's really just my deep hope that over the past eight weeks have opened your eyes and your hearts to the deep well of God's story and how it invites us to partner with God in living out the mission of Jesus Christ here in our world, in our city, and in your own lives. You see, the Bible is one story that leads to Jesus. And it, it's not just that all of the plots and all of the themes find their ultimate culmination and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Equally important is that this story leads you to Jesus. That like any good story, you find yourself lost and found in its pages. That you find yourself challenged and redeemed in its message of radical inclusion. That you find yourselves stretched by the extreme hospitality that God demands of you. And that you find yourself at home and hopeful when you ponder the union of heaven and earth. And the ways that God has called you to bring this story to all of God's people through the gift of sacrificial and self-giving love. 
So let's pray together. God, we thank you for your story. We thank you that you saw it fit to share that story with people like us. Fallen creation that that doesn't deserve your goodness, that doesn't deserve the love that you have shown to us. And yet, your story shows us continually that you want it to be our story too. So we rejoice in the gift of your grace, the fact that you are unrelenting in your pursuit of us, of humanity, in the ways that you have continued to show favor on your people throughout all of these generations. And so God, we invite your spirit to move in our hearts, to continue to to bring us into a closer relationship with you, to to stir us, to, to want to know you better, and to seek to know you better through your story, through the words of Scripture, through the gift of your beloved community, and through the grace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. We thank you that your story is one that did not end the day that you died. That your story was just beginning. That on the cross, you conquered the power of sin and death. And that in the future, we look to a time where sin and death are no longer in our vocabulary. That they've been removed permanently from our hearts and permanently from our world so that we can spend our lives in worship, and love and adoration of you and in loving, peaceful community with one another. So God, make your story our story. Let it be the driving force in our lives. Let it change the way we see ourselves, the way we see your world and the way that we see you. Embrace us, hold us as your children. Show us how to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.